have many indulgences in the season, actually. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 133 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who doesn't have many indulgences in the race season. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash smog. All right, let's get going with a review today from Ireland. Five stars from The Venge. Can't believe how good this is. Best cycling podcast I've come across and I have been searching. Getting more and more into riding and racing in the last 12 months and have now listened to every episode and they have helped me out so much. In a sport where saving grams from the weight of your bike can run into hundreds, it's amazing this resource is free Without a doubt, the best upgrade for your riding that money can't buy, Pierce in Ireland. Thank you very much, Pierce. I really appreciate you writing that review and kind words. I really do appreciate your kind words. If you like the show, I'd love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me go... Thank you very much. Now, the performance probe this week. Probe number one, the effects of Red Bull energy drink compared with caffeine on a cycling time trial performance. So this study investigated the ergogenic effects of a commercial energy drink, in this case Red Bull, or an equivalent dose of caffeine in comparison to a non-caffeinated control beverage on cycling performance. So 11 trained male cyclists participated in a double-blind, placebo-controlled, and crossover-designed study involving three experimental conditions. Participants either had Red Bull, caffeine, or a placebo 90 minutes before commencing a time trial equivalent to one hour of cycling at 75% peak power output. Carbohydrate and fluid volumes were matched across all trials. So performance actually improved after the Red Bull compared with the placebo But it also improved with the caffeine compared with the placebo. 2.8% improvement for Red Bull, 3.1% for the caffeine. So no significant difference in performance time was detected between Red Bull and caffeine treatments. There was also no significant difference in mean heart rate or rating of perceived exertion amongst the three treatments. This study demonstrated that a moderate dose of caffeine consumed as either Red Bull or another form enhanced cycling time trial performance. The benefits of Red Bull, the energy drink, are therefore most likely due to the effects of caffeine with the other ingredients not likely to offer additional benefit. 
does this mean that you're going to rush off and take some caffeine before your next time trial? Firstly, I'm not sold on the idea of jacking your system right up to get gains from it. I know it doesn't have a significant heart rate value change in this study, but if you are going to try this, don't do it in a big race. Test beforehand and use it sparingly. So only for important races once you have proven to yourself that there are no negative effects on your performance. Probe number two, testing part two, how do I calculate my FTP? This is an article by Alan Cousins on the different ways of deriving and calculating your functional threshold power, FTP. I'll skip over the start of it where he explains exactly what FTP is, but he goes into it by saying that you can estimate from short duration tests, which the most common one that we know of now is from Dr. Andy Coggan, and it's the 20-minute all-out test. And then once you have that figure, you take 95% of the power that you generated for those 20 minutes to give you a reasonable estimate. Cousins says that he has found that this is significantly overestimating the FTP in most circumstances, and he offers this alternative method. You would still do a 20-minute all-out test, but you would also do a 5-minute all-out test. Under the same protocol that Hunter Allen and Andy Coggan use, you do actually do a 5-minute all-out test before a 20-minute all-out test. Then Allen says, get the drop from the 5-minute power to the 20-minute power in terms of a percentage. Then once you have this percentage, multiply this by 0.75%. And then take this percentage off the athlete's 20-minute value to get a good estimate of FTP. So let's go through an example. So you had a 5-minute power of 377 watts and a 20-minute power of 338 watts. 37 minus 338 is 12%. So you take 12% and times that by 0.75, which gives us 8.65%. So then Cousins' estimate of this athlete's FTP is 309 watts, where Coggan, which is just 95% of the 338, is 321. So you can see there is a difference. There is a 3.65% difference, in fact. If we do it with another athlete that has a 5-minute power of 365 and a 20-minute power of 324, that FTP is 297 watts. So while the 20-minute power was fairly similar, the FTP actually changes by 12 watts, which is significant when you're talking right at that top level. And according to Alan, this method takes into account the very real differences in each athlete's power to duration or fatigue curve. So there are a bit of variation in 5-minute power outputs and 20-minute power outputs, which does lead to a change in his FTP calculation. The only real way to test FTP is to do one hour all out. It's not so friendly to you or your training. So Alan actually has another way to get this estimate without doing an hour all out or even 20 minutes or even 5 minutes all out. So how does he estimate FTP from aerobic tests? 
If you know your actual threshold heart rate, max heart rate, and resting heart rate, you could have a good number of data samples and you have a good number of data samples from a submaximal test. You can do this with a good deal of precision. So the submaximal testing Alan is talking about is a simple 2x10 or 2x20 or 2x50 effort on a flat road with each interval at a prescribed aerobic heart rate. The first interval is done at but not exceeding an appropriate heart rate of maximum heart rate minus 40 beats per minute. The second is done at a slightly higher heart rate of approximately max minus 30 beats per minute. The interval should be sufficiently long for the heart rate to stabilize, but not so long that heart rate begins to rise disproportionately to power. So you don't want too much decoupling. The fitter the athlete is, the longer the interval. So if you record average power of each interval, along with any factors that may have influenced the heart rate on that day, temperature, wind, stress, etc. Also, if you don't know your exact heart rate, you can get a good estimate for FTP with the following method. So you take your threshold heart rate, which does tend to lie, he says, at around 20 beats below your maximum heart rate in the range of 85 to 92% of max. If you have the data from the heart rate test just mentioned, this lends itself easily to the extrapolation of 20 beats per minute a little further up the curve. For example, power at maximum minus 40 beats per minute equals 200 watts, then power at maximum minus 30 beats per minute equals 230 watts, which is a 30 watt jump for 10 beats per minute. We would expect a similar jump when increasing heart rate leading to an estimated FTP of 260 watts. He does say, of course, this is a heart rate measure, so you probably want to do this test a few times before going firm on your FTP. However, the good news is you can. This is a low-stress test that can be done very frequently to assess changes in fitness. It is an estimate to be sure. However, an up-to-date estimate is far more valuable than a true expired one-hour test. Fitness changes more quickly and more significantly than most athletes realize over the course of a season, and this is a way of catching it before it's too late. Alan will actually include these heart rate test intervals every week for his athletes. That way, he can watch their progress without stressing them physically or mentally over unnecessary tests. While I do believe that some people just aren't testers, Having all-out tests when physical able is actually great prep for racing. It's a mini race with yourself and it can highlight holes in your physical, but more importantly, in your mental preparation. I personally haven't incorporated any of these ideas in the article, mostly because my athletes rarely get to test themselves in one-hour efforts to see if their FTP is accurate. So it's hard for me to make a comparison against their FTP estimate, no matter which calculation is used. I do like, though, that Alan takes a different approach, and I know he would have the data to back this up. And I may look at this as a comparison over a season to get an idea of how the percentage of the 20-minute test changes over time. On August 5, 2008, Sarah Hammer and Michael Meatball Friedman arrived at Beijing Airport ready to compete for the USA. The only difference between this day and any other day that they've flown into a country to compete was that they were wearing face masks to protect themselves from air pollution. 
Plus, they were also in Beijing, ready to compete at the 2008 Summer Olympic Games. At the airport, Meatball had this to say about his decision to wear a mask. Just the uh, precautionary air pollution. You know, just take every every. You got to take every chance you have just to protect the airways. You know, I mean, it's it's really just taking every precaution necessary. You know, I mean, who knows how bad it's going to be in a few days? So if you can. Just any air pollution, any contaminant, contaminants, uh, then you know it's better performance. Hopefully, you know. I mean, really, it's all it is. Better, hopefully, for a better, uh, better, better performance. So. While at a press conference later that day, Hammer had this to say: Because I have taken the precaution, um, I feel healthy. Um, you know, the whole point of you know what we were meaning to do by you know wearing the mask is to have a best performance and um, you know I believe that that's why I am feeling good still I mean I feel just like um, you know I, I feel coming into another race they both may have a valid point about wanting to maximize performance because they both had a shot at medals in 2007 the year before the Olympics Sarah Hammer was world pursuit champion and Meatball had won the scratch race at the World Cup round held in Beijing In 2008, at the Summer Olympics, though, Hammer finished fifth overall in the individual pursuit and did not finish the points race, and Meatball finished last in the Madison. We don't know exactly what went wrong with their performances, but how much of this could be attributed to air pollution, and do masks even protect you from air pollution? Is air pollution really that dangerous? Today, we're investigating whether Hammer and Meatball were right to wear masks and what you can do if you're faced with a similar situation. So let's start from the top. What is air pollution? It's actually better to ask the question, how do we measure air pollution? This gives us a really good insight into what makes up air pollution and how dangerous each part is. So how do we measure air pollution? Pollution is measured by the Air Quality Index, the AQI. This is basically a number that represents how bad the air is. The higher the number, the worse the air quality is. The AQI is used by government agencies, but different countries have their own air quality indexes based off their national air quality standards. This is why the US consulate in Beijing publishes a different number to the Chinese government an important point that I'll get to in a moment. First though, what does the AQI consist of? The AQI comprises mostly of the following conditions. Ozone. Ozone is a toxic, unstable gas formed when a freed oxygen atom combines with an oxygen molecule known in populations speak as smog. This reaction occurs when sunlight hits nitrogen oxide gases and volatile organic compounds from vehicle and industrial emissions. High levels of ozone often form on clear, still, sunny days. People with lung disease, children, older adults, and people who are active outdoors are the groups at most risk. So funny that people who are active outdoors are the groups at most risk because a study called Respiratory Effects of Low-Level Photochemical Air Pollution in Amateur Cyclists from the American Journal of Critical Care Medicine noted that relatively low levels of ozone can affect lung function in endurance athletes, making it more difficult to bring large volumes of air into their lungs. A group of nine amateur cyclists was studied in the summer of 1991 in the east of Netherlands. 
Lung function was measured before and after training sessions or competitive races on a number of occasions. Continuous heart rate monitors were employed to document exercise levels. Heart rate averaged 161 beats per minute during training and 176 beats per minute during exercise, and exercise duration averaged 75 minutes. Ozone concentrations during exercise were obtained from the nearest stations of the National Monitoring Network. The difference between pre- and post-exercise lung function values was was related to these ozone concentrations. Ozone concentrations were low on most occasions with the average of 87 micrograms and a maximum of 195 micrograms. The difference between pre- and post-exercise lung function was found to be negatively related to the ozone concentration during exercise. The data that they got suggested that effects of ozone on lung function were stronger in midsummer than in late summer. The difference between pre- and post-exercise acute symptoms was positively related to ozone for shortness of breath, chest tightness and wheeze. Cough and eye irritation were not related to ozone. These results indicate that in young healthy men vigorously exercising outdoors, ozone is related to lung function changes and acute respiratory symptom changes at low levels of exposure. Now, that's just the first one. The second one, particle matter 2.5. People with heart or lung disease, older adults and children are the groups most at risk. Particle matter 10. What is it? Tiny particles of smoke suspended in air no bigger than the width of a hair. Created by the combustion of petrol and diesel, they're invisible to the naked eye, but you can certainly smell and taste them. People with heart or lung disease, older adults and children are the groups most at risk. But a study called Inhaled Whole Exhaust and its Effect on Exercise Performance and Vascular Function looked at the internal combustion engine being made a major source of particulate matter which has been shown to result in vasoconstriction, the narrowing of blood vessels from contraction of the muscular wall of the vessels. The researchers wanted to examine the effect of freshly generated whole exhaust on exercise performance without going into into too much detail, 16 male collegiate athletes were randomly assigned to submaximal exercise for 20 minutes, followed by a six-minute maximal work accumulation exercise test in either high particulate matter or low particulate matter on two consecutive days. So the high particulate matter conditions were generated from a four-cycle gasoline engine. The results? Exercise performance declined in high particulate matter conditions. The next one, carbon monoxide, is a colorless, odorless, and tasteless gas that is lighter than air. It's created from the incomplete combustion of petrol and diesel. Normally, harmless carbon dioxide is produced, but without the presence of adequate oxygen, carbon monoxide forms instead. People with heart disease are the group most at risk. In a fairly detailed review called Athletic Performance and Urban Air Pollution, published in the months before the 1984 Summer Olympic Games, when everybody was afraid of the pollution from LA, Roy Shepard at Toronto Western Hospital described the effects on the body of polluted air. Smog, according to Shepard, includes carbon monoxide, unburnt hydrocarbons, ozone and oxides of nitrogen, while oxidating smog comes mostly from car exhaust, reductive in the chemical sense 
since smog is the result of coal power plants and other industrial burners discharging sulfur oxides into the atmosphere. Carbon monoxide has a predictable detrimental effect on your blood's ability to transport oxygen using your red blood cells. The carbon monoxide diffuses into your blood through your lungs, occupying the oxygen bounding sites on red blood cells and is very slow to be removed by your body. As the amount of carbon monoxide in your blood increases, your performance drops linearly since there is steadily less blood available to carry oxygen. Sulfur dioxide is a colorless, non-flammable gas with a strong odor. The most common source of sulfur dioxide is fossil fuel combustion. Coal burning is the single largest man-made source of sulfur dioxide, accounting for about 50% of annual global emissions. As well as irritating the eyes and the nasal passageways, it causes breathing difficulties, bronchitis, pneumonia, and lung cancer. Tightness in the chest and coughing occur at high levels, and lung function of asthmatics may be impaired to the extent that medical help is required. Sulfur dioxide is considered more harmful when particulate and other pollution concentrations are also high. People with asthma are the group at most risk. A few studies here and there might not be enough to convince you of the dangers associated with air pollution. A review done by the British Journal of Sports Medicine called Exercise and Outdoor Ambient Air Pollution examined the relationship between air pollution and performance in more detail. Scientists from Brunel and Surrey universities surveyed the literature to establish the levels at which air pollutants are considered damaging to humans in general and athletes in particular. Air pollution continues to be a matter for concern despite falling levels of some of the major pollutants, they explained. Many of the effects of air pollution on human health have long been established, but no clear consensus has been reached on the effects of ambient air pollution on exercise, athlete and sport performance. Athletes may be at particular risk of inhaling pollutants for these three reasons. There is a proportionate increase in the quantity of pollutants inhaled with increases in ventilation during exercise. Athletes breathe in 10 times as much air into their lungs as spectators, says Professor Frank Kelly. Number two, a larger fraction of air is inhaled through the mouth during exercise, effectively bypassing the nasal filtration mechanisms. And number three, the increased airflow velocity carries pollutants deeper into the respiratory tract. But push all that aside for the time being because the results from this review were actually quite clear. Carbon monoxide is detrimental to athlete performance. Nitrogen oxide is of concern to human health, but outdoor levels are low. Ozone possesses a potentially serious risk to exercising athletes. Decrements in lung function result from exposure, and there is evidence that athletic performance may be affected. Detrimental effects may occur at low ambient levels, but there is no scientific consensus on this matter. Particulate matter 10 is causing concern in the scientific community. Blood lead accumulation during exercise indicates that personal exposure to toxin compounds associated with PM10 may be magnified. Generally, outdoor ambient levels of sulfur dioxide are too low to cause a problem to the athlete except the asthmatic athlete. Conclusions, athletes and exercisers should avoid exercising by the roadside even though levels of the more noxious air pollutions have been controlled in some countries. Ozone is particularly damaging to athletes. It reaches its highest concentration on bright days in rural areas. 
These are strong words, but there's no numbers attached to the reduction in performance. So I had to go find a study that attaches some numbers. It's actually really hard to find a study because no one's looking into this. There are so many factors in air pollutants that you would have to probably isolate every single different one and see how they affect performance. And that's pretty impossible to get subjects. I don't know how anyone would volunteer for that. But anyway, I did find a subject that did a meta-analysis of some information that's out there regarding track and field performances, and it's called Pollution and Track and Field Performance. It looked at the direct performance effect on several track and field events, including endurance ones. So that's why it's of use to us. It concluded that both ozone and PM10 have a detrimental effect on performance in endurance events. For example, a 1% increase in ozone levels is associated with a 0.0377 standard deviation decrease in performance amongst male athletes in endurance events. As a point of reference and a bit more of a practical application, If we think about a 1,500-meter running race, this is 21.67 seconds on an average time of 4 minutes and 37.7 seconds. When it comes to PM10 and performance, the researchers saw a 5% effect of men and women's performance in endurance events. While these aren't conclusive numbers, it is the start of our understanding of how pollution affects performance, or at least it starts the conversation and gets some figures out there. And speaking of figures, in the days leading up to the Beijing Olympics, the BBC conducted its own PM10 readings. In a few weeks, this avenue in central Beijing will be used for the Olympic cycling, a first endurance test against this city's pollution. The Olympic cyclists will race along this road, and we want to test what the pollution's like right now, one month before the Games begin. We've got a pollution detector, and this tests specifically for airborne particles. We tested for seven days. Our highest reading was more than 350 micrograms per cubic meter. This is how the city matches up against the easiest interim air quality target. Four days are okay, but three are severely polluted. And this is how the readings compare to the WHO's tougher, preferred air quality standard. Just one day out of the seven is okay. So listening to this in the build-up to the Beijing Olympics, you could understand why Hammer and Meatball might have been concerned. On August 5, 2008, the day Hammer and Meatball rolled into the Forbidden City, the PM10 reading was 104 micrograms per cubic meter. The AQI, based on this number, was 88 And remember I mentioned before that different countries rate things different ways. Sometimes it's the calculation, but other times it's just how dangerous they consider that final number by the word that they associate with it, sometimes the color as well. But that 88 is moderate in the U.S. index. It's good in the mainland China one. So that's interesting in itself. But if you're looking at the US index, then you're definitely thinking that moderate is not too far away from the next level, which the best is 0 to 50, moderate is 50 to 100, and the next one is 100 to 150. As a comparison to the day they landed, the road race was on August 9, when the AQI was 78, which is still in the moderately good range. When the qualifying was done for the women's individual pursuit, it was 17, though. By the time I got this far into the research, the only thing that bugged me was that these two riders are track riders, 
And you wouldn't actually expect that the air pollution would affect track riders that much. I can understand before and after events, but during events, I wouldn't actually expect it to be that crazy until I came across a quote from Colby Pierce, who we have had on the show before. He raced an event in preparation a year before the Olympics. He said that he saw smog floating on the inside of the velodrome in Beijing and his throat became scratchy and he developed bronchitis, he said, because the air pollution. When you're coughing up black mucus, you have to stop for a second and say, okay, I get it. This is a really, really bad problem we're looking at. So I guess we are now probably at the point where you're sitting with your coach before you get on a plane as Hammer and Meatball would have been, and you're thinking, okay, I've got all of this information, what do I do next? So the case is definitely to be wary of air pollution, but what can we do about it? What did Hammer and Meatball do? When Hammer and Meatball walked off that plane, it was obvious that they were wearing masks because the masks were black. They were I Can Breathe masks from the USA, This caused a stir for political reasons, but the September before, the United States triathletes actually wore masks as well, but they removed them before competing. They stepped off the bus looking like a group of incredibly fit surgeons or, as one triathlete put it, a gathering of Darth Vader's. No other team was wearing masks. Some opponents snickered. You do look kind of silly wearing it, said Jared Shoemaker, 25, of Sudbury, Massachusetts, who had competed in Beijing twice before, but I wore it before the race this time, and I didn't feel burning in my throat afterwards. I could still taste the grit of my teeth, but I could actually talk and breathe. That wasn't the case in other years. This quote is from a New York Times article. The head of this issue for the U.S. wanted every athlete to wear masks. So does this confirm that a mask is the most effective way to protect yourself from pollution? We've spoken about the different parts of the air quality index. And in an urban traffic setting, this consists of carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, nitric, nitrous oxide, particle matter, and soot. The main dangers to performance that we've heard about are from increased ozone, carbon monoxide, and PM10. Not all of these can be protected in one mask. There are some new materials just being developed now, and they're called nanofilters, and I'm sure they're going to help us out in the future. But right now, though, we're left with particulate matter-protecting masks only. Well, not only. Masks that protect from carbon monoxide and ozone are essentially gas masks. Well, they are gas masks. And imagine Hammer and Meatball rocking into Beijing with full-blown gas masks, canisters and all. That would have been a total disaster. Anyway, back to the masks. For the protection against particle matter, the first thing we have to consider is the type of mask. You need more than just a simple surgical mask or a cloth mask. The category of mask you need is N95. A surgical N95 respirator is an NIOSH approved that has also been cleared by the Food and Drug Administration as a surgical mask. These masks are supposed to filter at least 95% of all particles that are 3 microns or larger. The other factor of importance is how you wear it. If there's not a tight seal on your face, then there really isn't any point in wearing it at all. The variation of face types also plays a role, and I have a link to a great little experiment 
of one that shows a 43.3% variation of filtering efficiency based on the experimenter's face type, and these were all N95 masks. Without the equipment to test this out, the simplest way to test this with your face mask combo is to take a deep breath and exhale. This should expose if the mask is airtight or not. As for recommendations, there are a few practical elements to consider. Using a mask is not confined to walking out of airports. There's everyday uses and more importantly, there is training to consider. If you were wanting to compete with one, I would actually consider your position in being there in the first place and wouldn't even start the race if air pollution is that much of a serious threat. But when considering a mask, you don't want the mask to get in the way of your glasses, fogging them up. You don't want it to get all wet and icky from condensation. There's all these considerations to think about. There are a bunch of N95 masks out there. I will list out all of them in the show notes, including my personal recommendation. Here's my final call on Hammer and Meatball and their mask-wearing fiasco. I believe that they were right to be cautious and wear them. The masks they wore were not N95 masks, but PM levels were shown to be high leading into the event, and the long-term effects of PM10 entering your system is enough to irritate and cause problems for highly tuned athletes wanting to perform at their best. Also, they had anecdotal evidence from teammates and some pretty strong support from recent reviews. This is a great lesson for us, though. You now know what to look out for when checking the pollution levels in the city you're competing in. But that's not the end of the story because the N95 masks only protect PM, particle matter. So what can we do about the other dangers? What else can you do? Well, stay out of the city for as long as possible. As Heiko Salzwedel said at the time, there is no way to acclimatize to dirty air. It's not like you want to go there and get used to it. Also, Mike Howell, MD, assistant professor at the Department of Neurology in the University of Minnesota, the biggest short-term effect would be an asthmatic attack for those sensitive to airborne particles. In the long term, athletes can experience a variety of pulmonary and heart conditions, Hal said. To limit some of these negative air pollution effects, if possible, athletes should train away from the polluted city before competition. So this also goes for training in general. You need to limit your exposure to air pollution. And here's a couple of ways that you can do that. The first is log on to your local air pollution website. Almost every city publishes detailed data on the pollution levels on a website, which is generally up to the minute. And you can check out exactly where you are and what the pollution levels are. Also, get in front. Push your way to the front of traffic lights and busy intersections. And this way, you can avoid direct contact with exhausts and everything that comes out of them. It's all about avoidance, really, because you're not going to ride with a gas mask, are you? Well, it's all about quieter roads, going at a different time of day when it's not so busy. The air pollution can move around because the wind is moving it around, so it can be different in different spots. And this is where having an accurate picture of what it's like where you are. There's some great apps out there that you can search for a specific area, and it gives you what's happening in that area. But outside of that, avoidance is probably the best solution for this problem. Now, let's get to the tech hacks and products section. I'm going to use this section as a bit of an update on the show and semi-pro cycling. 
You may have noticed last week that there was no podcast episode, and I've got to say, I've got a couple of reasons for this, but the main reason being my involvement with the Mobius Future Racing Team. This is a new team being put together in Sydney, Australia, to compete in the National Road Series. My capacity in the team is as their performance director, mostly looking after coaching for the majority of the riders on the team, but also other areas such as team performance as a whole, including the performance systems around optimizing team selection and lead up to events. So our first event is next week at the Tour of Perth in Australia. I'm looking forward to developing the systems over this season to see what we can tweak and where we can actually make improvements and hopefully we're going to have a killer season. Something else which is new is that this episode also marks the first time that I'm asking you, dear listener, to donate to help keep the podcast going strong. The show has been going strong for coming up to three years now, in which time we've taken apart and put back together a lot of the world of cycling training. To keep it going strong, I'm asking for your support through a monthly donation. You are free to choose how much you donate. If you have ever got a new idea, inspiration, a laugh, or a performance gain from the show, now is the time to show the love. And to get donations going, I have a little competition for the first month to entice you. If you enter by the end of March 2015, one person will win a one-off semi-pro cycling t-shirt and, best of all, a chance to win a custom three-month training plan written by me or a one-hour phone consultation just for you. All you have to do to donate is go to semiprocycling.com forward slash support, sign up, and you will be entered to win. And now that quote from the top of the show, it is, of course, Simon Gerrans. He has been a broken man this season, but he has managed some training camps. And while he was in Cape Town in South Africa, he posted a photo of a workout that he wrote on his hand. High-tech stuff right there. And so a sneaky bit of detective work has actually led me to figure out one of his training sessions. I couldn't make out every single number, but it's a series of intervals. And the first one is something times 15 seconds at 450 watts. And then he does six times 30 seconds at 480 watts, four times one minute at 450 watts with two minutes rest, two times three minutes at 410 watts with five minutes rest, and then something times one minute at 480 watts with two minutes rest. That sounds killer. And then he ends it with an effort that is 430 to 500 watts of unknown duration. I've got to say, not only would those last one-minute powers hurt, but also that last effort sitting right up at 500 watts, I wish I knew how long that was for. But anyway, you're not going to get much out of that except for getting a little look into what a pro does for a workout. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash support to donate to help keep the podcast going strong. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 